Hey friends, I'm excited to share this conversation with Dr. Robert Alter. Robert Alter has published a translation of the Hebrew Bible, and uh, it's not only a translation of the Hebrew Bible, but it's also a commentary. So it's fun to get his thoughts on um, his methods of translation and uh, the reason he made the, um, the translation choices he did. and. Getting his commentary along the way is a lot of fun to read, too. Um, Dr. Robert Alter has a PhD from Harvard University. He's Emeritus Professor at UC Berkeley. Um, he's taught courses on the 19th century European and American novel, on modernism, and on literary aspects of the Bible. He also teaches and writes on modern Hebrew literature. His um, publications uh, range from critical biography to literary theory, um, as well as, of course, um, uh, the Hebrew Bible that I just mentioned. Um, it was published by Norton, uh, I think it's 2018, and um, again, can't recommend it enough. In this conversation, uh, we chat about um, Hebrew Bible translation, just translation in general. We also wade into the text of the Hebrew Bible. We talk a little bit about um, a poem in Jeremiah, and we also talk about um, the two creation stories in Genesis 1 and 2. I hope you enjoy this conversation. It was a blast, and um, I'm excited to um, pass it along to you as well. All right, well, we are here with Dr. Robert Alter, and we're going to be talking about the Hebrew Bible. Dr. Alter, thank you so much for joining us today and your willingness to be with you. Yeah, absolutely. So I have to say, this is um, this is one of those times where I, I kind of become a fanboy because mm-hmm. I, I love your work. I, I enjoy your translation of the Hebrew Bible. I use it in my classroom. And um, it's it's a lot of fun to work through, and uh, it's a privilege to have you here. So thank you so much again. Um, so, yeah, I have about a million questions, but I know we don't have time for a million questions or a million answers. Not quite. But, <laughs> but we'll take we'll take a stab at a few of them. Um, so at the beginning of your translation, uh, your three volume translation of the Hebrew Bible, um, you have an essay, and it's called "The Bible in English and the Heresy of Explanation." Can you elaborate a little bit more, um, for those who might not have read the essay, could you elab- elaborate a little bit on um, what you mean by the heresy? Let me get rid of this. Yeah. Um, yes. Well, I, I will um, share with you a, a comment that I received a while ago in an email. Um, uh, someone who... Um, uh, identified himself as a priest in the Church of Scotland and who had spent several years in seminary studying Biblical Hebrew, uh, wrote me, it was a fan letter about my translation, but he said the following, that, that uh, uh, when he and his wife noticed that a new English translation was coming out, they rushed to buy it, and they bought several different ones by the, the various committees, as you know, in the who had produced new versions in the second half of the 20th century, and they were always dissatisfied. And his wife, who must be a very smart woman, said to him, the, the trouble with these translations is that they're bossy. No, no. What she meant by that is that instead of conveying what the original says, 
which may have multiple meanings and may be deliberately ambiguous or may be deliberately enigmatic, these translators are bossy because they tell you what they think uh, you're supposed to understand the, the original to mean. Uh, and I can give you a, one concrete example, which I, I don't mention in, in that essay, uh, metaphors. Now, for some bizarre reason, these sundry committees, and it's not limited to one denomination, believe me, it's uh, uh, Jewish, Protestant, Catholic, um, they, they work on the assumption that, that modern readers cannot understand metaphors, which is ridiculous because we couldn't talk without metaphors. So this, we, we, we speak of throwing in the towel, going off the rails, and, and on and on. So what they often do is to substitute what they assume is the meaning of the metaphor for the metaphor. For example, um, when it is, when Joseph accuses his brothers of being spies, he says, um, and this is literally what the Hebrew says, to see the nakedness of the land you have come. Now, the, I ran across at least two uh, widely circulated translations that say something like, to, uh, to find the weak spots in our defense, which I think is a, a violation of what, what the Hebrew is doing. The, the descent metaphor is um, resonant, you know, has this sexual connotation. It, it's tied in with incest taboos in, in Leviticus and so forth. So th that would be one small example uh, of why explanation is a heresy. Yeah, I understand. And I, the, the essay that you, you've written, I was just going back over it again. Um, I guess it was this morning. And um, yeah, it, it, it's really enlightening. You give the reader a lot to consider and a lot to think about. And you give plenty of examples there. And um, one thing I was going to ask you too is in that same essay, you you talk about a couple of options that translators have, namely one, to translate into ordinary everyday language versus into the language of um, literature. Mm -hmm. And um, could, could you explain a little bit more about that? Because um, you, because you notice in the Hebrew Bible that there is a mix of just lots of normal terms and language, but at the same time, there does seem to be a disconnect between what you, what, you know, an ancient Hebrew farmer might say versus what might be written in down in the text itself. So um, I don't know, we can talk a little bit about that, but in terms of just translation, like what, 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 what do you have to say to those who want to just translate straight into ordinary language and bring it down I guess you could say bring it down, <laughs> but just in, into that everyday language. Well, the, the thing is this. Uh, everyday, if everyday language is um, uh, everyday in the 21st century, 
you um, you generate a kind of dissonance between the style of your translation and the style of the original. For example, the, the, there's um, that translation by Eugene Peterson, which you're probably familiar with, which I gather has sold millions of copies. Um, and his notion precisely was to bring the Bible down to the um, ordinary person. So um, in, in his version, uh, God says to, to the um, growing things at the beginning of Genesis, green up, which <laughs> is kind of it is fun. Or, or uh, in the Lord's Prayer, um, it's uh, give us now three square meals. Yeah, I remember that one. <laughs> okay, so... Yeah. Uh, I guess I would not entirely uh, uh, dismiss that. Uh, that that is, um, it may be that that for many believers, um, any any Bible that doesn't speak altogether the lingo that they speak every day is inaccessible. So uh, I, I give them a bit of credit for that. But it does seem to me to be a, a violation of, of uh, the original and a, a taking down of, you might say, the the dignity and the eloquence uh, of the, the Hebrew. Now, let me add the following. The uh, prose style in the Hebrew Bible actually is uses simple language that that is uh, that there are no fancy literary terms um you find those in biblical poetry which has a poetic diction but th there's a what i make out to be a deliberately limited vocabulary in, in the prose uh for example there's only one way in the prose narratives to say light, like the light, daylight, and so forth, which is or, plus a cognate maor, which means a source of light, like a lamp. Um, and um, if you turn to the poetry, there are maybe five different words that, that, that would be the equivalent of English words like brilliance, radiance, effulgence, and so forth. Uh, so, uh, and you can see, by the way, the King James Version is very good in this respect because it's quite literal. So uh, in the uh, flood narrative, you have, uh, and the ark went on the face of the waters not floated, not sailed, or anything like that, but went. And, and there is something quite eloquent about it. Now, this isn't the way we would put things, but also, it's not really perplexing. I mean, every reader of the English language knows the verb to go, right? Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. So, what what evidence is there 
that would yeah what evidence is there to suggest that like the hebrew farmer was using probably slightly different prose or language even with respect to just vocabulary or whatever than what was actually written down in a text or even with an uh, oral okay. tradition that's a very good question well first of all um the grammar he used was a little different um that, that is uh there's this peculiar feature of verbs in um the prose narratives the hebrew verbs that they are um conjugated uh, as as though they were in the future but um there is a a little particle in front of the, the verb v, which means and, that converts them into past tense. Uh, now, I don't think your uh, Judaite farmer in, in the, um, let's say the eighth century BC spoke with that, verbal peculiarity I, I think that that was a, a literary convention and one of the ways that that uh, i conclude this is when people in the dialogues it's not used so the the dialogues come closer to the actual speech patterns of ancient hebrew mm -hmm. gotcha you you, you mentioned the volve um how do how do english translations handle the reoccurrence of the volve in 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 the language it's you know because you, you spend a lot of time talking about this oh, in that okay. essay as well too you know in in what what dam i mean i guess we could say damage or what um how does this alter i suppose we could say the um <laughs> the the, well, the text and no i have to say that um some have criticized me for reproducing the vav as and. They, they say, well, it doesn't really mean that. And it's just a, a grammatical signal and, and so forth. And, and by the way, if I, if I could interrupt real quick, could you, just for the audience who may not be familiar with Hebrew, could you define what a vav is and kind of how it works a little oh, bit? Okay. Yeah. Vav means and. And... Uh, 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 when it's stuck in front of a verb that looks like it's a future, like let's say the future, the verb that means to go. If you, you have Vayelech Avraham and Abraham went, that Vav in front of Yelech makes the ostensibly future form Yelech into the past form, the past meaning, the past form ordinarily would be halach. Um, now, I did not want to um, eliminate the vav for two reasons. First of all, it, it's part of a um, a kind of syntax that's technically called parataxis don't let this not scare your viewers it simply means parallel syntax that is instead of 
senses that that evolve with, with um, uh, although since uh, while uh, and so forth with these subordinate clauses, you have and so and so did and so and so went and so and so raised his eyes and saw like that with the end and and uh, now I think that this is used with great effectiveness in all kinds of different uh, contexts and that the ands are also part of the rhythm of the prose. And if you repackage the syntax as, as modern English syntax, uh, you lose a great deal. But let me report an exchange I had with, with uh, an eminent Bible scholar who was a friend of mine, now deceased. Um, since we'd been friends, when my first translation came out, Genesis, I sent him a copy. And um, he wrote me back. He clearly hated it. But <laughs> he tried to be tactful. But he was a member of one of those scholarly committees. So he was wedded to a very different notion of how to translate. A, a translation one of the things he said in his letter to me, this is before email, actually, uh, he said that um, while um, the repeated vavs work well enough in the Hebrew, uh, English simply can't tolerate the repetition of ands. Mm -hmm. Now, I think that that comment betrays a lack of literary understanding. And I pointed out to him in my response that this kind of parataxis was uh, a definite resource in literary English, that, that uh, Hemingway picked it up from the King mm -hmm. James Version and mm -hmm. used it all the time. And uh, in um, Molly Bloom's soliloquy at the end of James Joyce's um, uh, uh, Ulysses, you get and 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 I think that that her soliloquy is what one of the, the great pieces of, of English prose poetry written in the twentieth century. So uh, I think it works. Yeah, and you give an example in the essay, and if I'm if I may bore the sure, listeners for, for just a moment, this comes from Genesis twenty four, and what you're doing is you're comparing your translation. Uh, to another one, I forget which one. Oh, the Revised English Bible. This is the Genesis 24, the Rebecca scene. So this is your translation, and just for the audience, you can you can hear the ands, uh, re, you know, over and over and over. And we'll explain maybe the significance of this. And I'll read your translation, then I'll read the REB. Okay, go ahead. So yours, you see this, <clears throat> and she came down to the spring and filled her jug and came back up, and the servant ran toward her and said, "Pray." Let me sip a bit of water from your jug. And she said, drink, my lord. And she hurried and tipped down her jug on one hand and let him drink. And she let him drink his fill and said, for your camels too. I shall draw water until they drink their fill. And she hurried and, and emptied her jug into the trough. And she ran again to the well to draw water and drew water for all his camels. Now here's R.E.B. 
Revised English Bible, same passage. She went down to the spring, filled her jar, and came up again. Abraham's servant hurried to meet her and said, Will you give me a little water from your jar? Please drink, sir, she answered, and at once lowered her jar on her hand to let him drink. When she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I shall draw water also for your camels until they have had enough. She quickly emptied her jar into the water trough, and then hurrying again to the well, she drew water and watered and, and watered all the camels. So in the second one, you have kind of a, sm- a smoothing out of the, of the, of the sentences, right? Mm-hmm, and yeah. y- yours has more of a, I don't want to call it an interruption because it's not the purpose of and, but, but there's more, um, I suppose you could say little bumps along the way. And why do you think that that, in, in this passage specifically, why do you think that's important to come across? And wh- why does the REB get it wrong there? Well, uh, our foremother, Re- Rebecca, <clears throat> in, in this uh, encounter, is um, uh, executing an act uh, of, uh, you might say, um, uh, Homeric, um, <clears throat> Homerically, um, <clears throat> excuse me, um, uh, heroic hospitality. Um, uh, I, I don't know much about camels, but I'm told that that uh, that a camel, uh, after a, a long desert trek, uh, can consume like 25 gallons of water, and th- there are I think 10 camels here. Yeah. So she's a kind of blur of movement, <clears throat> movement, movement down to the well, uh, up to the camels, down to the well, up to the camels, etc. And I think the and, and, and gets you the, the, uh, the sense of all that. Let me add the following. Sure. Since um, the modern uh, translation committees assume that, that like my, my, uh, my friend, the Bible scholar, that um that modern readers can't really follow parataxis that it alienates them i have a friend who teaches at stanford and um he was teaching uh the book of ezekiel and he performed an experiment without uh, tipping the scales at all an experiment with his students. These are Stanford undergraduates. Um, he uh, he had them read uh, for a portion of, of <clears throat> Ezekiel my translation, and then uh, one of the uh, prevalent translations by committee. And he asked which they liked and why. And actually, a little bit to my own surprise, uh, most of them preferred <clears throat> my highly paratactic translation and said that it somehow made everything that was going on more concrete and they really mm. liked it. That's a good way to put it. I think that's how I would describe it to you. Yeah. That's really good. Yeah. So, <clears throat> 
all the more reason to translate every word and every part. Right. <laughs> That's really good. That's great. Um, yeah, let's see. Uh, did you, so I have a few more questions here and this could take us down to several rabbit holes, I suppose. But so ancient Hebrews, um, never really possessed like this vast empire, you know, we're thinking like of Hellen- right. Hellenistic empire or whatever. Um, relatively small, uh, geographically speaking, uh, in the ancient world. And yet we still talk about their literature today. And mm-hmm. what do you think best explains that? What is it about Hebrew literature? You know, we still talk about their poetry. We still are obsessed with it. I mean, I think it was even, um, uh, uh, maybe the audience can correct me here, but, um, I think even Richard Dawkins commented how beautiful uh hebrew poetry was you know and so i mean everybody talks about it. everybody will continue to it'll survive me it'll survive many so, so for so long from now mm-hmm. how do you account for that like what is it about the hebrew bible that keeps us coming back to it well that's a good question and i agree that that, that ancient israel as a country was small potatoes um you see this not only because it occupied a really a sliver of land <clears throat> surrounded by these great empires, but in the archaeological finds, uh, you, you have in terms of architecture, sculpture, um, uh, painting, th- these magnificent achievements in Egypt and in the Mesopotamian Valley, whereas um, uh, what what has been unearthed of ancient Israel was pretty rudimentary, like the the uh, the, the the paintings are pretty much uh, stick figures, nothing like the let's say the the magnificent um, wall paintings in Egypt or or those uh, wonderful Assyrian base reliefs. But something unaccountable happened, uh, and I have no explanation for, for why it happened. Uh, th- this little backwards culture produced writers of genius. I mean, some of the greatest poets in the, the whole ancient Mediterranean world. And um, uh, uh, prose narrative writers of a, a subtlety and complexity and power that that, um, uh, that dwarf everything around them. <clears throat> so there it is. The, 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 there is this stunning achievement. But of course, what you have to couple that with is the... Um, the the new belief that that uh, they brought with with through their literary art, that um, especially as the centuries went on, the, there was a growing dissatisfaction w- with polytheism and an attraction to monotheism. And that, of course, expanded exponentially when um, the the new faith of Christianity took up the the heritage of the Hebrew Bible. 
So I think that that's why um, it, it it both expanded dramatically and it had staying power. Uh, and of course, when uh, among Jews, I have to add, it, it went on basically because of the anchorage of the Bible. It was a little more complicated than that. That the, the Jews, obviously not the vast populace of Jews, but but um, the uneducated elite clung to Hebrew. Uh, they were literate in Hebrew. Um, in uh, the Middle Ages in Spain, they pr produced astoundingly brilliant poetry in Hebrew. And uh, they were all, Hebrew was all set to be revived in the modern age. The, the, there's a touching story that, that the, the late um, Hebrew novelist Amos Oz tells. Um, he was he was somebody I was friendly with, and uh, uh, I recently wrote a, a biography of him, uh, okay. which is he was traveling in Italy with his family, and they came to Rome, and of course went to look at the Colosseum. So outside the Colosseum, there was a row of kiosks that were selling illustrated brochures about the the Colosseum, and in a lot of different languages, maybe like 20 different languages for the tourists. And one of them, one of the languages was Hebrew, modern Hebrew. And Amosos began to cry. Why, why was he crying? Because it suddenly dawned on him that um, the, the language of the builders of the Colosseum Nobody knows anymore, or you uh, know, scholars sure. know it. Whereas the defeated, the Judeans, mm -hmm. their language is alive and kicking. <laughs> it's a great really, story, I think. It, it is a great story. That's really good. Hey, friends, I hope this episode is a blessing and encouragement to you. I hope that every episode of The Bible Unmuted gives you something fresh to consider and something deep to ponder. My goal is to offer food for thought, to give listeners the tools they need to be faithful interpreters of scripture. I cherish your continued prayers for this ministry and thanks so much to everyone who lifts me up in prayer each week. If you're finding this podcast to be helpful for your study of scripture, consider leaving a review of the show and sharing with your friends. Perhaps even consider becoming a Patreon member. This will give you access to some cool stuff and it helps support the podcast. You can become a patron for as little as $5 a month. Every Patreon supporter gets access to a monthly bonus episode, as well as an invitation to a book club, where we come together periodically and chat about a book that we read together. There are various levels of support too, which will get you access to other things. You have the option to join monthly Zoom meetings with me, where we come together and discuss all sorts of fun, biblical, theological stuff. Another tier of support will get your name thrown into monthly book giveaways as well. All to say, there are lots of cool features for patrons of The Bible Unmuted. If you're interested, visit patreon.com slash thebibleunmuted or follow the Patreon link in the description for this episode. Thanks so much for your support. Yeah, no, that's a that's a um, some good thoughts there. Um, so, if I could move our discussion to something uh, more in a sp another specific text. Um, so let me just back up a little bit. So, 
having been um, immersed, as it were, in you know an evangelical sort of world, I grew up in the Bible Belt, that sort of thing. And one thing that I noticed among many Christians uh, was how, and I don't mean this like in a, I don't mean this derogatory or anything, but like very ignorant about the Old Testament. Like none of the Old Testament stories, maybe Noah in the Ark and. Uh-huh, you know, right. the, the big ones that we draw cartoons about and um there's just not a lot of emphasis on on the hebrew bible and um going through life and and all the vicissitudes that comes with life though one place i remember my grandmother telling me this she said um there's a lot of hope to be found in the psalms so i was just drawn to the old testament from a very early age you know that's interesting and where did uh, you grow up in oklahoma yeah okay so right in evangelical land. <laughs> and so um, um, so anyway, so I remember my grandmother to this day telling me that, you know, we were just having a conversation about the Psalms. And I was always drawn to the prophets, too, for some reason. And um, I was just always in it. But if there was, um, even to this day, if there's one prophet that I keep coming back to, and I will keep coming back to until I draw my last breath, it would probably be Jeremiah. And... Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm particularly drawn to Jeremiah chapter 20, where the, the poem starts in verse 7, where he's saying to God, you know, you've enticed me, you know, and you've drawn oh, right. me. That's a, a great moment. It, it's, it's an, uh, yeah, it is a great moment. I mean, it's, it's full of, I mean, one minute you have cursing and the next minute you have praise. And it's just, it's all kind of wrapped up in this package and it's very human. And I think that Maybe that's why I appreciate it, because here's someone that I admire, like Jeremiah say, and then yet he's he's talking the way he is. And I'm just curious to get your thoughts on this. Perhaps we can sneak in a few words of theology here and maybe in the mind of Jeremiah um, or to draw it out, I suppose. But um, yeah, what what is Jeremiah's poem there? And starting in verse seven and following, what does that tell us about and what is the language that he uses? I mean, my goodness, some of the language is pretty. Well, it's just fascinating it's the things he he talks about God or the way he describes God's actions toward him. What is this? What kind of um, you know, what does this tell us about Jeremiah's view of God? And, and and if anything, does it tell us anything about the conception of God then and how to talk to him? I mean, I always grew up, I always grew up hearing when you say your prayers, be nice, <laughs> you know. Um, <laughs> and yet, when I read the Bible, sometimes the prayers aren't nice, but they're honest. <laughs> so yeah, right. so can you maybe if you want to elaborate like if you want to speculate feel free to do whatever but um what does jeremiah's words in that poem in particular tell us about his view of god and the way he feels he can relate to god well <clears throat> jeremiah as you know had a hard time of it that is um he was prophesying doom to the kingdom of judah and he also <clears throat> was um, politically, he was espousing a very unpopular position. That, that, that is, he said that there was no point in resisting the Babylonians. The Babylonians are going to overwhelm us, so we might as well just put down our arms. Uh, so, you know. In political terms, he was a defeatist. And he paid a big price for this. More than just being uh, reviled, um, 
he was at least at two points imprisoned mm-hmm. uh, and uh, he was threatened with assassination. The second time he was in pr- prison was in, in a um, uh, a pit in the, the royal compound where he was way down below <clears throat> and could have easily starved to death. And he was saved, interestingly, by a Nubian who had a, some function in the, in the court. Um, so as I said, this was, <clears throat> in prophesying, he was leading a pretty miserable life. But he, he felt that he could not escape <clears throat> the burden of prophecy, that this is what God wanted him to do. And of course, well, the doomsaying went along with with, uh, repeated denunciations. I'm sorry, I've got a little frog in my throat. It it went along with repeated denunciations of the paganizing behavior uh, of his fellow subjects of the kingdom of of Judah. Um, So he was a man of of conscience, and he felt that that his conscience was not just um, kind of a, a, a spontaneous reflex of his own imagination, but it was coming from God. So he he was, um, let's say something like, um, a, a, a imagine <clears throat> maybe around 1940, we could even make it 1928, um, somebody living in the deep south who was appalled by, by um, Southern racism and the Jim Crow uh, system and, and kept get, getting up <clears throat> in the public square and denouncing it uh, because that's what his conscience or maybe that's what God told him he had to do uh, and his uh, being threatened with mayhem by his fellow Southerners. That's how I imagine uh, Isaiah. Mm-hmm. So, how do um, I mean Isaiah? I mean Jeremiah. Jeremiah, too. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, is this you know? I, you know I'm sh- most people who are familiar with the Hebrew Bible and the Psalms, like this idea of lament, like it's it's a very transparent way of praying. Um, does this? Um, I, I don't know. I just can't imagine in some, like in in my realm, some Christian church context like some of these prayers even be tolerated. Like I could imagine a pious individual saying, yeah, don't talk to God like that, you know, but there, but there seemed to have been that freedom there, at least in their minds to do that. Um, mm-hmm. Is that, I mean, I'm, I'm assuming though, that there would have been people who would not have liked those, these sorts of prayers too, or would, or was it just expected that God can take that sort of language from a, a mortal? Is that the case you think? 
Well, I think there were plenty of people who didn't like it, including now um, Jeremiah was a priest. He was from the the priests in the town of Anatoth, mm -hmm. and um, his fellow priests there considered him to be a, a kind of turncoat. Yeah. So that's the row he had to hoe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's interesting. Yeah, I highly recommend everybody needs to read Jeremiah and um, have fun uh, reading that. Um, okay, so let me, I guess we can we can round off some. Well, I've got a few more questions. So one more textual question. If we could go back to Genesis 1 and 2, um, I, I've, I've been, and, and of course, everybody talks about the two creation stories. I'm just curious yeah. to get your take on this. Like, why two creation stories? Like, what would the motive have been? for giving two different creation stories. I mean, they're different, you know, key words that are used with respect to the cre the process right, of creation, right. for example, right? Um, can you, any hunches on why there would be two creation stories right off the bat? Yeah. Um, well, um, a, a recent book, a really good book on um, Bible transit, uh, no, it was a general book on, on uh, the Bible by John Barth, who, who is a, a, a fine British Bible scholar and a, a, a priest in the Church of England. And he says, what we call a book in the Bible, you have to think of more as an archive in which um, uh, valued materials in the culture are assembled together. So, the now it, it, it's pretty well established that the the, um, uh, the editor of um, well, let's just stick to Genesis. That the editor of Genesis was a priest, or it might have been a small circle of priests, and um, he had in his whatever, let, let, let's say, his priestly archive, the version of Genesis that begins in chapter 2, what, what scholars call the, the J version. Your, mm -hmm. your listeners don't, don't have to bother about where that comes from. Um, and it was a revered story um, which was considered to be authoritative um, but uh, and so the, there was no way of jettisoning it or or let's say um, rewriting it that that would have been a, a kind of violation but at the same time it, it didn't fully square with the priestly writer's theology. Uh, I'll focus on, on theology in particular, though I'm not, not a theological type. Um, that, that is, the, the, the God of the old story was um, uh, a, um, was imagined anthropomorphically 
you know, he goes for a walk in the garden in the cool of the evening when the, the Middle Eastern heat kind of recedes. Um, and um, uh, later on in Genesis, when he, he appears with two angels at Abraham's tent, he looks just like a human being. The, um, Abraham takes him for a wayfarer. And, and the way he works at creating things is in a way that's analogous to human crafts. That, that is, he, um, he takes clay from the soil and shapes it into a man and then blows the breath of life into uh, the, the nostrils of the, the man he's made. So the, the, I think the priestly writer uh, taking the, the, this report, which predates him by a couple of centuries, didn't think it was wrong in a way. It couldn't be wrong because it was the tradition. But it needed some kind of supplement which would offer us a different theology, a different vision of God. So, so God in his version creates everything out of a series of speech acts. Um, and God said, let there be light, and there was light, and, and so forth. Uh, and he, he's, he's not in the least uh, anthropomorphic. And in fact, uh, as a, I think you hinted, two different verbs are used for the act of creation. In, in um, the priestly version, it's bara, which flat out means to create. Whereas in the older, the J version, it's yatsar, which is the same, I think I translated as fashioned. It's the word you would use for a potter uh, turning a piece of pottery on his wheel. So um, I think if this is a little baffling, having these two, two different versions of creation, which in some ways are a little contradictory. Um, I think um, it, it's um, an intent, uh, and by, by the way, the, the editing clearly was done by um, priestly people or priestly person. And I think that's why they put their version first, even even though it's a more recent one, because they wanted it to be right up front. So uh, the the, um, the 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 priestly editor wanted readers or listeners to have both versions to get a a, a kind of um, a bifocal vision of God and creation. Hmm. Yeah, starting off with the transcendence of God, perhaps. Um, you know, God being a little bit further away, I think is something you mentioned 
maybe in a commentary or something that that's what we get in the first creation story in the second creation story god is much more close he's hands-on with creation i suppose right right exactly okay. yeah yeah no that's good yeah um i i've you know i've had a billion conversations about these two creation stories and of course they're not the only creation stories in, in the hebrew bible but those are the first ones you get <laughs> when you read the first two chapters so um right. And and there there are differences between them, of course. The order of creation is noticeable. The 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 means of creation is you right. Know. right. Um, but anyway, um, I'm just curious. I'm just trying. I always try to think in in terms of what 21st century people are going to be asking. But, um, but you know, I think it's fair to say that the cosmology that we see in Genesis one, the first creation story, is slightly different than what we ascribe to today. <laughs> Um, in many respects, um, and so why, if somebody, if a, if a, a good modernist, you know, some enlightenment sort of thinker said, why should I read the creation story? What what does the creation stories offer us? Like whether that's literary, you know, theologically, what does it say? You know, I don't know. Like what would you say to somebody like that? Like why why would a modern sure. person want to read Genesis one? Well, of course, as you noted. Uh, neither creation stories could be taken uh, as a scientific representation of how things came into being. Uh, but the, 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 there are other kinds of truths beside, beside the, um, uh, the scientific one. So the... the what marks the first version of creation is the sense that everything is harmonious, that creation proceeds through ordered steps from day one to the first Sabbath, and the um, uh, refrain-like repetitions uh, and God saw that it was good, etc., are a way of reinforcing the choreographed harmony of um, uh, of this conception of creation. Now, even though creation couldn't have happened literally in that way, it is a vision of, um, let's say, something like the... the um, the, the law-like coherence of the universe, uh, that um, it's not chaos, but it's governed by a, a set of uh, what we would call physical laws. Now, the, um, the second version doesn't really get so much into the origins of everything, but rather into the, the human story from the get-go. And, um, and there is insight into the predicaments and uh, maybe complexities of the human creature mm. that, that is... Um, God notices at the beginning that, that uh, the first man is lonely. Mm -hmm. 
it is not good for the man, man to be uh, alone. I will make him a, a helper beside him, however you translate that kind of hard Hebrew term. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, and then uh, there's the matter of the uh, the susceptibility uh, to temptation of human beings uh, of attention uh, uh, tension that emerges between uh, man and wife and so forth. And these are all important things to tell us about human nature. And even look, the, the um, one of the first narrative episodes after the garden, of course, is Cain killing Abel, which is a shocking story. And um, it's strife between brothers, fraternal jealousy, and it's violence and murder. Uh, and uh, there's a kind of um, moral, even historical realism about that story, e even if a, a Cain and an Abel, Abel never existed, because well, we look at the world around us and we, we look at the daily news today and, and it's all killing and violence and we can't seem to find ways to reconcile our differences. Yeah, those, those stories pack a lot of punch. That's for sure in more ways than one. Well, um, a couple, just a couple more very brief questions. Sure. Nothing, nothing um, too deep per se, but I'm just curious. This is just Matt asking a question that I'm curious about, a few questions. Um, you know, this might be like asking a parent, Hey, what's your favorite kid? But I'm curious, um, if you had to pick your favorite, uh, book of the Hebrew Bible, what, which one draws you to it the most? Which one do you find the most fascinating? Well, um, I, I guess in terms of an, a narrative sequence, Although I, I I love the patriarchal tales and especially Joseph and his brothers, I think maybe the most fascinating is the David story, hmm. because uh, well first with Jacob and with David we get something that doesn't exist anywhere else in ancient literature, which is the tracking of an individual life as it evolves through time hmm. and changes over the years. Um, and in, uh, in David's case, the, um, the question of politics enters in in all sorts of fascinating mm -hmm. ways. That, that, that is, uh, uh, David seems to play a realpolitik game and yet he has these deep feelings, like he, even uh, his rebel son Absalom, who wanted to kill him, when Absalom is, is killed, he is shattered because despite it all, Absalom is his son. And the, that uh, famous line that William Faulkner picked up, Absalom, Absalom, my son, my son, would that I had died in your stead, is, uh, I think, one of the great moments in, in all ancient literature. 
Mm. Yeah, it's very moving for sure. Um, so it, how long exactly did it take you to translate the entire Hebrew Bible? Well, I, I think the the whole thing, and I have to explain uh, mm -hmm. a little bit how I got into this. Uh, the whole thing took me 23 years. Okay. Uh, and th there are a couple of reasons for that. To begin with, I didn't imagine translating the whole ball of wax. I figured <laughs> I would do Genesis and it would not work out well. And I would throw up my hands in despair. And then Genesis worked out better than I thought and, and it was well received. So I thought, well, I'll do one more book. And one book led to another book. And so uh, over the years, uh, I came out, I don't know, with six or seven individual volumes, uh, at which point, this is maybe about six, seven years ago, uh, I said, hey, I've actually got out there in print almost two-thirds of the whole. I can make it to the end. <laughs> so so there, there was a slight intermittence in the way I was working on it. And the other thing is this. Um, your viewers should know that that my original training was not in biblical studies, but in modern comparative literature. And uh, I, I love the novel. I love uh, Fielding and Nabokov and, and Faulkner and all, all kinds of other writers. And I, I never abandoned that love. So in between uh translating books of the Bible, I, I was doing things like a, a, a book on the novel and the city, a, a book on the literary canon, a, and so forth. And that kept me sane. I think if I, if I had just monomaniacally focused on the, the Bible only, I, I would have gone off my rocker. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I'm also just curious about this. Just uh as I develop my own writing habits. I've only written two books in my life, so I'm a novice. Um, how, yeah, did you have like particular writing habits? Um, you know, what was your process in writing a book? I, I'm just, I'm just curious because yeah, I'm well, always looking for a formula. <laughs> uh, I, I like to work on my writing in the morning. Okay. So uh, after breakfast, it used to be by nine o'clock the the latest. Alas, now I I, I do um, email as everybody does, <laughs> and it gets to be more like ten o'clock than nine o'clock. And then, so I, I like to start after breakfast and work steadily for um, maybe four hours, certainly no more than three, and that's my my day's working. In writing, um, for some reason, I, I find that that it's easy for me to concentrate. I don't get distracted. So uh, uh, now the the other thing, and this is um, you might say a little scandalous. Uh, I have never used multiple drafts. Um, the, the, it's some kind of work of my, my mental operations, I, I would say. But I, I I write by longhand in pencil. Oh, okay. Uh, Everything you write is all, it starts off yeah. that way. 
Okay. okay. I know when I was interviewed by a woman for PBS on my Bible translation, I mentioned this and she responded in shock. <laughs> you write 3,000 pages uh, by longhand. Uh, but <laughs> That's the, a lot. The is that writing is very much a craft for me. Mm. So I feel when I sit in front of a, a blank page with my cross mechanical pencil and start writing, I feel a kind of uh, physical connection between uh, my body, my hand, and and what I'm putting down uh, on the, the page. And for some reason, I have the, the this knack for formulating things in my head and for, this is beyond translation, other kinds of writing, and for placing things in a certain order that clicks. And it's just, I mean, of course, I will occasionally change a sentence or modify phrases, but, but it's not like a whole other draft. Mm -hmm. Sure. Yeah. Um, yeah, that, that's, that, that's cool. That's helpful for me. I, I, I don't really have a system for when I write. It's kind of weird. Like, I, I try to be disciplined to write something. Yeah. Uh but that's so hard. Maybe just because I have a crazy schedule. But um, but there are times when I'm I get this kind of itch. I'm like, oh, I've got to stop everything and go yeah. right right now. <laughs> you know? It's, it's it's kind of weird. So I try to and I've learned that even if I get out my iPhone and I'm typing up a note, if I've got something like I've I've written a proto article before on my phone and then you know, later on it's found its way to the editor or something, you know, but um so I just it kind of get these I don't know it's kind of a weird feeling I don't know how to make sense of it but so I'm always curious about people's writing habits. Um, last question: Are you are you working on anything right now that you can share about? Yeah. Um, well, I have a a short book that I, I finished recently, which is now under consideration uh, at Princeton University Press, and you know that takes a while because. I'm sure you're from you know the the, the drill that the, the university presses all have to send out the, the the manuscripts to readers, and the readers often drag their feet in sending in their reports. So I'm just waiting on that. But um, so this book is about dialogue in, in the 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 Bible and biblical narrative. And I, I have come to the conclusion that um, the biblical narrative is unique among ancient literatures in creating dialogue that reads quite like dialogue in the novel, even though it's much more compact, of course. Mm -hmm. But it, it seems to serve the same narrative functions in terms of, of revealing the, the character of the speakers and their relationships and so forth. Mm -hmm. Yeah, very good. Well, we look forward to having that. And for everybody watching, I, I, I can't hold up all three volumes, but this it's a beautiful cover, by the way. It really, it's really, yeah, I like it. it's fascinating. So this is, um, this is the Torah um, and there's two other volumes. Highly recommend it. it it's a wonderful, um, piece of work great translation it's just something that 
Um, I enjoy reading. And um, there's a commentary too with it. Like we tell our students, it's worth the commentary alone. So um, I just want to say thank you for your scholarship, your work, and thank you so very much for being on the show today. Okay, I'm happy to have done this and I enjoyed talking with you. That's the end of today's episode. And thanks again for listening to The Bible Unmuted. If you like this podcast, consider rating it on your podcast platform, subscribing to it, and sharing with your friends. You can also support the podcast by becoming a Patreon member. Go to patreon.com slash thebibleunmuted or simply find the link to the Patreon page in the description for this episode. Thanks again for listening. Until next time, friends. Thank you.